Hi, welcome to the Benbrough Priory podcast. I'm Marcus, your host and the coordinator of marketing and fundraising here at the Priory. Today I'm joined by Father Connor McDonough. Connor is a Dominican priest at St. Saviour's in Dublin, originally from County Galway. Amongst other things, he's become something of a YouTuber of late and is a serious, serious scholar with degrees from the University of Fribourg in Switzerland, Maynooth University here in Ireland and Cambridge University in England with his work covering everything from philosophy and Latin to the natural sciences and theology. So just to begin then, Father Connor, can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of the key events and moments in your life and how you came to know and love Christ then? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me, Marcus. You're doing really, really great work up there in Ben Burb. Um, and I'm really looking forward to, to getting up there at some point. I haven't been yet. Um, but so, yeah, as you said, I'm from I'm from Galway, from Salt Hill. A lot of people would know um, Salt Hill, you know, they might pop down in, the, in their summer holidays and um, especially people from the north. We always noticed that growing up that especially around the 12th of July, there'd be a, a huge <laughs> exodus from the north and loads and loads and loads of northerners in Salt Hill, which is kind of really exciting for us. They were really exotic in our eyes. Um, and uh, yeah, so growing up, I was brought up in a family of, of six and... Um, my mum and dad, they just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary last weekend. We had a wonderful get together. And um, mum's from Monaghan, dad's from Mayo. And they both um, have very strong faith in quite different ways. Um, so my father would be, you know, quite quite traditional in his faith, you know, just very, very straightforward, um, but very profound. I mean, at, at times of serious crisis and and pain and suffering, um, he, his faith really came to the fore. Um, and my mother would be maybe more in the kind of charismatic, Catholic charismatic renewal um, and um, more kind of outgoing, I suppose, in her expression of faith. Um, and so that was kind of always there in the background. So kind of the presence of God was always welcome in the family home, if you like. That was really important to us and not in an imposing kind of a way. I think that's that's a really, it's something I've been thinking a bit about recently, just how little mom and dad imposed things on us. We were, you know, if we were praying the rosary, we all had to come and pray the rosary, but it didn't happen all the time and we were given a good bit of freedom as well to explore and to um, and to try different things out all that kind of stuff but then for me I suppose a major turning point apart from all the other you know good influences I had a major turning point was attending youth 2000 retreats and um, so I went to one in Knock I'm sure lots of your listeners would know of youth 2000 a kind of festival kind of atmosphere where young people from all over Ireland would gather um, and the Eucharist would really be at the center of the whole thing, praying the rosary and sharing faith in kind of small group discussions, studying scripture um, and just seeing other people of faith and how alive they were and seeing the contrast between that beautiful little subculture and the dominant culture that was there around me. And from that point, and, you know, I had similar experiences afterwards, going to World Youth Day in Cologne, going to other Youth 2000 retreats, going to other um, Catholic events. But I was really convicted from that stage that, you know, this is the path. This is the way, as they say in Mandalorian, this is the way I was convinced from that from that early stage. But I had huge doubts as well. Um, and one of the major figures who helped me, I suppose, um, uh, in my thinking through my doubts at the time was St. Thomas Aquinas, um, a great Dominican saint. It was the early days of the Internet um, and I had access to some of his writings online. And so with all my questions, I would come to his works and see if I could get anything out of them. And I just found there something so rich and deep and profound and beyond 
what I could understand for sure. I mean, I understood about 10% of it, but I realized there's something really serious and coherent here that's worth engaging with. And that was really my first encounter with the Catholic intellectual tradition. So, I mean, I was in Catholic schools. There was a certain amount of devotion as part of it, but never really was exposed there to the Catholic intellectual tradition, to the idea that there is this whole way of thinking that's associated with the faith and a way of thinking that spins off then into beautiful works of literature and art and so on. So really it was Thomas Aquinas. That was a really important encounter um, for me. Um, and those kind of aspects kind of fed into my growth in, in faith and um, my growth in discipleship. And when I was at university then in Cambridge, I was studying science um, surrounded by non-believers. Um, I think it was it was really clear to me at the time that, you know, growing up in Galway, people were more or less Catholic, more or less, usually less, but they were more or less somewhere on the spectrum. And then going to England, suddenly I was being categorized as a religious person. And they were saying, oh, Connor, he's religious, as if that's something unusual and strange. And so I had to kind of process that and try to figure out, well, am I going to to own this, own my faith and really understand it? Or am I going to let it decay and, 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 and fade away? And so I got more and more involved in the Catholic chaplaincy. And I know, again, you know, there's some really flourishing chaplaincies in Ireland at the moment in UCD and Trinity up in, in Queens as well. There's some really, really chaplaincies where conversions are happening. And I would say the chaplaincy in Cambridge was a little bit like that, where there was a great community, great prayer. And we were always challenging each other, asking questions, helping each other out in our in our growth and understanding um, and and coming to, to know and love the Lord more and more together. Um, and that's really uh, where my Dominican vocation flourished because I, you know, through these various events, you know, at some point or other, you're saying to the Lord, okay, I'm ready now to do whatever you want, which I think is a vital thing to say at some point. Just whatever you want me to do with my life, Lord, I'm ready. It's not just saying I want this or I want this or I want this, but just whatever. And then the Lord can surprise you with all kinds of different things. And for me, it was just when, once I started reading about the Dominicans, I just felt like this is what I was made to do. And um, the more I got to know them, the more I became convinced of that. And that's how I end up uh, a Dominican today. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing a bit of your story, Father Connor. And I think you're in good company there with the, the influence of St. Thomas Aquinas. I know Bishop Barron was... Yeah. indelibly marked by St. Thomas Aquinas's influence by the kinds of things from this yes. young age. And then um, I just want to look at, at your more recent uh, kind of initiatives then to, to help us to, to learn a bit more about you and your story. So recently you've been offering this wonderful series on behalf of Dominicans Ireland, Treasure, Ar Treasure Ireland. How did that come about then and what do you hope folks will ultimately take away from it? Yeah, so it's it's a really exciting new development. So, I mean, my main job, I suppose, is is teaching um, our Dominican students who are blessed with, with, you know, many vocations. We're really, really blessed. We're, you know, one of the very few orders in Ireland who are getting vocations. And so my main job is teaching these guys, but at a provincial chapter. So people might not realize how orders generally run themselves. But in the Dominicans, every four years, we have a provincial chapter where we elect people to go to a month-long meeting which is as penitential as it sounds and that month-long meeting you make all kinds of decisions about where the, the province the Irish province of Dominicans is going to be in the next four years what we're going to do 
what are our priorities? And I was banging the drum. I was actually meant to be <laughs> to be going to England to to study for 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 a doctorate. I had that kind of like lined up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was I was banging the drum very, very loudly for online preaching, just saying we need to really invest in this. This is so Dominican. Dominicans are about communicating the gospel, you know, in a in a beautiful and attractive fashion in every way possible. And throughout our 800 years, we've been doing that through all kinds of different media. And now we're presented with this challenge of doing it online. And so it's not really a matter of whether we should or not. We, we absolutely should. And we really need to step up to the plate. This is what I was saying. And so I was banging the drum so loudly that I was given the job of promoter of online preaching. And so since then, I've been trying to um, kind of build a thing because I have no real technical expertise. Um, But I was, you know, very keen that we work with some very good professionals. So we hired uh, a young man, a Canadian um, filmmaker called Patrick Grant, who had previously been working with Net Ministries. Some some of your listeners might be familiar with Net Ministries as well. So he has been working with us for um, the last, um, let's say, nine months. And we've been producing quite a lot of uh, content for our YouTube channel, as well as Instagram and Facebook and so on. But YouTube, um, we've been having quite a few different series, and one of them is Treasure Ireland. So the idea behind this, basically, it's the idea that if you go anywhere in Ireland, if you just scratch the surface in any little parish, you're going to find incredible stories of Christian heritage, whether it's modern saints or you know, going back to times of persecution or further back to kind of early saints in Ireland, you're going to find something. And the idea then was that Irish people love people and they love places. They love stories about people and places. We love especially stories about our own local areas. And if people have drifted from Christianity, drifted from the church, one way to draw them back is through stories about the local people and places which show the gospel, you know, which kind of are, you know, I don't know, um, just the, the very stories themselves show the, the gospel in action and in an attractive way. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to every county in Ireland. And that's the plan, all 32 counties. And we're going to do about 10 videos in each county. And so far we've done five, which doesn't sound like much, but it's been a lot of work (laughs) because you've got to get permissions from the Office of Public Works in the Republic. You've got to get your insurance sorted. You've got to get all the right local contacts. You've got to plan the whole thing. And then, I mean, one of the days recently, the car wouldn't start. And we were just thinking, oh, Lord, we had about five videos planned. Um, but luckily, you know, somebody ran out of their homes with a battery, with a car starter. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've been blessed. The whole thing has just been phenomenally blessed. Each time we go out to film, amazing things happen, like beautiful little miracles. And um, we meet wonderful people of faith. And then people who don't, who wouldn't say they're of faith, but they're more and more curious really fascinated uh, and so yeah it's just been a real blessing and there's been a very good reception of the videos and um, and i'd encourage people to share them widely if they enjoyed them no oh, that's brilliant and I, I i most enjoy them myself now father and um glad to hear it work. so i want to look at a, a few of a these little vignettes that you shared so in one you discuss st bridget we've just recently passed St. bridges day and it's provocatively titled uh, St. Bridget, Goddess or Saint. So yeah. I wonder what are some of the, the major details about this great saint then and how much of it actually does correspond with historical reality? Yeah, well, 
I was kind of amazed um, around the whole, because again, in the Republic, there is this um, bank holiday in honor of St. Bridget's Day, it's the Monday nearest St. Bridget's Day. And um, it was the first time this was happening. So there was a lot of talk about St. Bridget. And a lot of people were referring to her as the goddess Bridget um, mm -hmm. or as as both. <laughs> so that was a, quite a common thing. Whether you think she's a goddess or a saint, you know, she can be whatever you want her to be. <laughs> um, and actually, I think that's really doing the historical woman a disservice um, by turning her into some kind of avatar that we can, you know, we can turn into whatever we want. No, she was a real woman who um, who really existed. And we know this because um, there was a community that regarded her as its founder in Kildare. And about 100 years after her death, that community produces a, a life story of Bridget. Now, it's not really a life story because it's kind of a load of different miracles um, and it doesn't really tell you from beginning to end and so on. But the point is that in this life story, Kildare, the community she founded, is actually claiming primacy over all of Ireland, which shows that it was not an insignificant community. And some people say, oh, I mean, these founders were just invented. But if a community want to, wanted to invent a founder and they were claiming primacy over all of Ireland, then they would certainly not have chosen a female founder to do that. So it looks very likely that it's historical, that there was a female founder. And the life that was produced at the time, it's encouraging pilgrims to come to Kildare. And it's describing what Kildare looks like. It's the earliest description of the architecture of an Irish church of that period. And it's fascinating that there were wall hangings, tapestries, and that on either side of the altar, you have these founding figures buried, Bridget on one side, and all the nuns would sit on that side and pray there. And Conleth, the Bishop of Kildare, her collaborator on the other side, and that they were buried in gold and silver um, reliquaries, uh, which is just a really, I mean, incredible thing um, in, the, in the sixth and seventh century. So, um, Again, if they're trying to attract pilgrims to this place, it's very unlikely that they're going to tell porkies and and make it out to be fancier than, or, you know, at least make it out to be way fancier than it is. It's very likely that their description is more or less what was there in Kildare at the time, and um, even if they might have exaggerated um, slightly. Um, but at the same, so there, I mean, all the evidence is there then that there was this real historical figure who left a kind of a real mark on her community. They remember her as having particular characteristics, especially around generosity, especially around care for the poor. Um, and so for me, it's it's just a, a no-brainer. There is a very much a historical figure there and, and we can know something of her, even if it's not eyewitness testimony from her time. And so we've got to be careful about how we use those sources, but they really do give us access to um, a real historical person. And the goddess Bridget is a much more shady and vague figure and um, she first turns up in a 10th century text um, and actually she's three different goddesses each of them is called Bridget um, and then there was a goddess that was seemingly worshipped by uh, the British people but we don't actually know if she was worshipped in Ireland there's no evidence for that from the period at all and um, so for me it's just very very clear maybe they shared a name but that doesn't undermine the reality of, of Saint Bridget Brilliant. Thanks for that. And it's, that's something I love about your series, Father Connor, is are these little historical nuances that blow apart many of our contemporary myths. And you see the, the complex nature of how 
you're moving between the oral tradition and the written tradition. You have to go back and forth in time and cross check. So it's a, it's a real um, <laughs> Sherlock Holmes yeah. quest for the historian or history lover. Exactly. And it's not straightforward. I think that's, again, it's a mistake perhaps that believers might make is that we might think it's all very, very simple and that we could go the opposite extreme. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we have to be, you know, responsible when we're using historical sources and not to make overblown claims, you know. And so to be to be responsible as well when we when we make these assertions ourselves. Oh, I'm into that. Thank you, Father Connor. And um, St. Bridget being from Fogart near Dundalk, um, which is actually my dad's hometown, is something mm. I'm quite interested in. Mm. Um, you've done a, a few videos in and around this area, which is so rich in history. And um, in one video, it's almost bordering on clickbait, <laughs> I joke, but it's um, well titled, Was Cúhollán a Christian? you show again how intertwined our ancient myths and our Christian heritage really are. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, this figure and why he's important? Then? Yeah, and it was pure clickbait. Uh, I can you know, <laughs> hold my hands off. That's pure clickbait. Was Kukul and a Christian? And it's funny, when I was sharing this video in different groups on Facebook, so many people were just furious. And before watching the video, they were just, you know, saying, no, of course he wasn't, you know, and don't be daft and, and so on. Um, but it was kind of slightly tongue in cheek. Um, but our point there, um, and actually it's a point that's well made in another podcast recently, a podcast called Risking Enchantment. Some of your listeners might enjoy it. Um, Rachel Sherlock presents it. Uh, there's a Sherlock for you. And um, she has Greg Daly on and they're talking about Irish saints and so on. Um, and they make this exact point that that we don't have direct access to Irish paganism at all. Everything we know about Irish paganism is filtered through generations of Christian thought and practice. Um, that we have Christian literature, that the stories of Cúchulainn and Croher MacNessa and all these different people, um, that really we should regard them as Christian literature looking back to a real or imagined pagan past. And very often it seems that it's an imagined pagan past rather than um, a real continuation. In other words, at a certain period in Irish history, Christian writers are actually inventing a pagan past or inventing aspects of a pagan past for all kinds of different purposes. Um, and Cúchulainn is one, one such figure. You know, he's actually, in a lot of his stories, he makes prophecies, a lot of stories about Cúchulainn, he makes prophecies that are directly relating to Christ. And um, I mean, there's one of the, one of the absolute weirdest ones. Um, I, I spoke about this in Trinity College. Uh, in a, it'll be going up on the Thomistic Institute um, account on SoundCloud, if people are interested, paganism in Irish Christianity. But Patrick says to... Um, he's trying to convince the, the King of Leinster, King Loigra, to convert. And Loigra says, I'll only convert if Cúchulainn rises up from the dead and preaches the gospel to me. And so St. Patrick, the next day, he somehow finds the tomb of Cúchulainn. Cúchulainn rises from the dead and he's he's kind of flying over their heads in his chariot. And he does 27 tricks in his chariot. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know what kind of what the tricks would have looked like, but they're actually described. It's like, you know the cat on its tail and the and the dog on its nose and all kinds of weird names like that. It's the, the most bizarre thing. And Cucullin <laughs> then says to the King of Leinster, you've got to believe God and you've got to believe St. Patrick and you've got to be baptized. And then the King says, well, will you tell me some stories about, you know, your time? And so it's kind of story time with Cucullin. Then Cucullin tells some stories and the King is delighted. He's like a fanboy, you know, this is great stuff. <laughs> um, and then Cucullin says, but listen, 
believe God, believe St. Patrick, and be baptized. And eventually the king is baptized. Um, so Cuchulain very often is kind of used in this Christian literature to show pagan testimony to Christ, mm -hmm. um, which I think is is really, really significant. Uh, and this turns up a lot in early Irish Christian literature, this idea of pagans witnessing to Christ. Um, and if you think about it, there's a lot of early Christian writers from the Mediterranean world who are saying exactly the same thing from St. Augustine to Clement of Alexandria, loads of them are interested in combing through pagan culture to find, you know, people or, or, or texts or whatever that are pointing forward to Christ. They're expecting to find seeds of the gospel, as Robert Barron, Bishop Barron loves saying, in pagan culture, and that early Irish Christians were doing the same. That's wonderful. Thank you, Falkar. And um, I, I love that element of Bishop Barron's work. And my friend, Dr. Lou Marcos, has also done similarly with the the wonderful myths of uh, ancient Greece and Rome, mm -hmm. his ancestry is itself Greek. And mm -hmm. uh, he's actually coming to Ireland, uh, to Belfast, this summer on behalf of the C.S. Lewis Institute, which I most look forward to. And perhaps we can get, we can get into some of those intricacies as it pertains to Ireland, specifically, or the British Isles broadly. Yeah. And um, really? actually on that topic of uh, C.S. Lewis, I've recently just started a fellowship with the C.S. Lewis Institute in Belfast. And as a lover of this great Ulsterman, I was delighted to learn of um, C.S. Lewis's to re really rather touching connection to Drahada. Can you tell us a little bit about that story and um, some of the surprising uh, little elements there are? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and actually there's there's a book recently been published by a priest called Father Paul Clayton Lee called C.S. Lewis and the Wee County. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about that book when I was filming the, the video, but I've heard about it since and it's well worth a look um, uh, about C.S. Lewis's connections with, um, with uh, Loud. Um, so we we filmed that. It was actually the very first video we filmed um, way back in you know January of, of last year. And uh, we did such a bad job of it. I did such a bad job of it. I kept muffing my lines. Um, that we said we'll actually go up to draw it again and do it properly. Um, and so so we did it again. Uh, the story was really worth telling, we felt. Um, so it's about how uh, C.S. Lewis ended up in Drada, and it was really through his brother, Warney. So Warney had been a soldier and uh, sadly became an alcoholic and was quite a serious alcoholic. He'd have, he'd have major binges. And Warney went to Drogheda to meet a friend of his and the friend never turned up uh, for whatever reason. And so what did Warney do? He went on a binge and he woke up then in the hospital of the medical missionaries of Mary, um, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Many, many people would know that enormous hospital in Drogheda and they'd know the story of the medical missionaries of Mary, founded by Mother Mary Martin, really inspiring figure and just a wonderful community. But anyway, Warney was there, Belfast Protestant, very little contact with the Catholic world. And he says it himself that he thought nuns were uh, ogreish and sinister. I think they were his words, ogreish and sinister. Um, and so he was terrified to find himself. He wakes up in this um, in this hospital with nuns you know, floating around. Um, but then he just fell in love with them. He got to know them absolutely fell in love with them and they kind of helped him to dry out and he would come back on an almost annual basis to Drada to to detox and just to be in this healthy community he called it i think it was a fortress of happy valiant christianity and he says all the nuns from mother mary martin down to the youngest novice 
Um, they all have these wonderful virtues. Um, so he was just really Im impressed by that. And then C.S. Lewis would sometimes come over with him. And he actually wrote a little essay um, in support of the Medical Missionaries of Mary and their, their work in the hospital. Um, so that's the story we tell in that video. Um, yeah, and it was, I was really moved to hear that, just that, that it was his brotherly love that brought him over, uh, over to Drogheda. Wonderful. And um, C.S. Lewis, I think, is a particularly important figure in a thankfully more ecumenical Ireland, although it's great to see little examples like that for, from history, which are now coming to greater fruition. And, yes. and I think your work is going to play a part in that. Hopefully. Please, God, I think that kind of, yeah, um, that sort of awareness of, of um, just the, the witness of, of Protestants and um, that kind of mutual awareness, how we can each witness to Christ um, for each other. I think that's something you find in C.S. Lewis. Um, where he's, you know, he's he's writing letters to nuns. That's something he's doing on a fairly regular basis, and to to Catholics and so on. Um, and and there's just this really healthy ecumenical spirit that's not about kind of, you know, pretending the differences aren't there, but just recognizing these are real disciples of Christ, and I have something to learn from them. Um, and so the yeah, I I would definitely be quite inspired in in any ecumenical work that I do. C.S. Lewis, I think, is a really good model for me and 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 for the for the whole church into that thank you father connor and um another theme i wanted to touch upon with you is about the relationship between faith and science so once a, a few years ago i was in lake como with my wife in italy and uh, we actually ventured to the volta museum which has wonderfully on one side scientia if i miss you, you're the one <laughs> you can tell me if i'm pronouncing the latin right on one side and fide on the other science and faith Mm -hmm. and um, a healthy relationship I would say when it's properly understood but now it seems to be divorced in many people's minds I think in large part because of really erroneous anti-Christian propaganda or a lack of historical consciousness or things like that I suppose um, we can get more into this later but I'm curious to hear how the lives and works of figures like Father Nicholas Callan, in particular, helped to deconstruct these little myths. And what did you find most interesting about him? Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. A lack of historical consciousness. I think that's that's really, really part of it, because you can argue with people in the abstract about how science and faith relate to each other. But for me, it's, you know, it's even more powerful simply to tell stories and, and to, to kind of fill in the historical gaps, because the only story that people have in their minds when it comes to science and faith is Galileo. That's a story they all have in their minds. Maybe at a push, then they might have a story about Columbus being afraid that he was gonna fall off the edge of the earth and that the, the church is telling him the earth is flat. Again, total and utter nonsense. Um, and it's a 19th century myth. And this is this goes back to a 19th century novel that was quite explicitly anti-Catholic. Um, and yeah, so I mean, it's amazing how these things, you know, endure um, in people's minds, but, I think, as I said, a, a, rather than just um, arguing the abstract, simply telling lots of stories uh, of, of scientists who are working at the heart of the church is, is a, probably a better way to respond. So for the Nicholas Callan, we have a video up there and um, it's called The Highest Voltage in History. Um, and he was a Dundalk man, actually, or from very near Dundalk. Um, and he ended up, uh, in, he went to seminary in Maynooth. 
he was sent to Rome to do a doctorate in theology. But at the same time, he was, because as a seminarian, he had studied science. This was just part of the curriculum. It was called natural philosophy. And um, so basic introduction to science. Um, and he, in Italy, then he had the tools to engage with the really new work that was being done in electromagnetism by people like Volta, Alessandro Volta and others. And it didn't even enter their heads that this was kind of something opposed to their faith. It was just absolutely part of, you know, they were, we went part, went uh, hand in glove together. And so then he came back to Maynooth, became professor of natural philosophy there. And he was active in the university for about 30 years. There's actually a letter um, that survives from a student writing, he's a first year student, I think, in the seminary, um, writing home to his mother. So in the, let's say middle of the 19th century. Um, and he's saying there's a, a a very holy priest here who teaches us science and um, we're, we're all afraid he's going to blow up the college, but he's a very holy priest <laughs> um, because he was actually doing lots of experiments that could, that could have blown up the college. Uh, and one of the things he was doing, he was working with a local blacksmith um, to produce huge electromagnets. Um, and that would be then applied to induction coils. He invented the induction coil to produce really large, uh, large voltages. And sorry, the electromagnets were used to to test um, the, the the power that was produced. But he would also test the voltage by inviting the seminarians to actually <laughs> touch the sparks and <laughs> and to see how far back they were thrown. And he'd be taking notes and all that kind of stuff. Um, so very, very risky business. But the point about all of this is that it all happened at the heart of an, you know, major Catholic institution in Catholic Ireland, and it was not remotely controversial in principle, not even remotely. Um, it was just right at the heart of the institution that this scientific work was being done. And he produced, as I said, the highest artificial voltage in history to that point, um, which is which is pretty impressive. But um, yeah, so I, I, I just love telling these stories. And I think it's, um, it's and even in, in terms of the history of Irish, Irish science, Father Nicholas Callan, features very prominently in the list of, of great Irish scientists. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing a, a bit of his story, Father Connor. Sure. And um, going in a different direction now, I want to ask you about something to do with ancient Ireland again. And um, I'll put it into context here. We have uh, an Alf Monaghan coming to speak at Benbear Prairie actually this year on the topic of high crosses around Ireland and an apparent link to the Copts of Egypt with um, many of these ancient crosses bearing images of saints associated with that part of the world, an abundance of words linked to things like the desert, uh, we see the Dysart, sort of D-Y-S-A-R-T and things like that, and uh, ancient manuscripts which possibly suggest a relationship. This is something that Paul Kingsnorth, who's spoken at the Prairie, has picked up on, and he's popularised. And um, for me, it also speaks to this abundant history in Ireland that one can discover by attending to these little details, wrestling even with the simple things like the symbols and crosses and what they mean and other ancient bits and pieces. I suppose with all that said, then um, you've also done a little episode on Castle Dermot High Cross. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why that's significant and maybe even if you want to go into High Crosses in general? Yeah, well, there's um, there's a, a high cross in Castle Dermot in County Kildare. There's two of them, actually, one on either side of the church that's there. It's a lovely, um, quiet little town. And and the church there is currently a Church of Ireland church. Um, and they're they're part of a kind of a little family of high crosses in Kildare um, that are made that are carved in granite. 
So the Moon High Cross is another one that people might be familiar with. It's well worth looking up, M-O-O-N-E, and then the Castle Dermot High Cross. And the reason they're so precious is because the sandstone crosses, you know, have lost a lot of their features because they, they've kind of eroded. But the granite crosses are much harder, and so they preserved a lot of their features. They were also harder to carve, so the, the characters on them are are quite different. They're much more basic sort of characters. Um, but uh, yeah, they have, as you mentioned, they have lots of um, Egyptian features. So one major figure who's on quite a few of them is St. Anthony of Egypt. Um, and then there's a, another scene represented on the high crosses because they're covered in panels of, of kind of stories, mostly from the Bible, but then a few saints' lives. So you have St. Anthony of Egypt, and then you have Paul and Anthony um, who were, um, I don't know exactly the details of, of their relationship, but I think Paul was another hermit in the Egyptian desert as well. Um, and Castle Dermot, actually, in Irish, it's called Gishert and um, so Dermot's Desert. Um, so this idea of the desert is a place that where hermits go to be and so on, and that we could have a desert in Ireland in some kind of wilderness um, as well. Now, it may be that the links, and it's almost certain that the links with Egypt are indirect rather than direct. You know, I don't think there's evidence that there were Egyptians floating around Ireland but definitely it shows the huge cultural impact of Egyptian monasticism on monasticism everywhere and um, via people like John Cashin. So John Cashin really influenced by, he goes to the, the, the Desert Fathers and he collects loads and loads of stuff. And in, in the conferences of John Cashin, you have basically the wisdom of the Desert Fathers from Egypt and um, being transmitted throughout the Latin world. And then Basil, St. Basil, who's just a saint we should all know and love. I think he's a wonderful saint. He um, went also uh, as a young man to Egypt to, you know, learn at the feet of the Egyptian monks and then to, to synthesize their wisdom in his monastic rules. And actually these two rules, the, the, the well, Cashin's writings and Basil's rules, they were actually really important in, in the Irish church. Often people don't realize this, but Columbanus in his rules, um, he, he often quotes from, from St. Basil. And in his letters and sermons, he quotes from Basil as well. And uh, there's a beautiful uh, early Irish poem, one of the earliest Irish poems that exists, which talks about St. Columba of Iona and talks about him um, applying the judgments of Basil and uh, reading the, the conferences of Cashin. And um, so this is, I think, really where Egyptian monasticism is influencing Ireland. Um, and we're reading about people like St. Anthony of Egypt and so on. Um, and, you know, they're, they're just kind of key figures. And even recently, I was reading a poem written by St. Angus of Tala. So Tala in the ninth century was a really holy place. I'm not saying that it's not a holy place today, but it was <laughs> a really holy place in the ninth century. And St. Angus was part of the monastery there that was founded by St. Will Ruin. And Angus writes this poem kind of covering the whole calendar year and, and just listing all the saints that are celebrated on each day. And some of the saints are Egyptian saints, like he calls one fellow Shanfol, old, old Paul, and he's the Paul of early Egyptian monasticism. And so I just think there's um, uh, there's there's wonderful connections there. The point about, I'm gone off track a bit, but on Castle Dermot, um, there are, as I said, there are scenes from the life of Anthony, uh, of St. Anthony of Egypt. But this video we made focused on um, King David. So King David is often, often represented playing the harp on these crosses and we just delved into the question of well you know why what's the connection between david and the harp and the cross and the connection is of course you know your listeners will know straight away it's the psalms that we as christians 
we look at the cross in light of many of the Psalms. Christ himself quoted Psalms on the cross and, and beforehand uh, and so on. And so this is the point that these early Irish Christians were making when they put King David on the harp on the cross. They were saying, understand what happened on the cross in light of the Psalms. And of course, the Psalms, that was their spiritual bread and butter. They were singing the Psalms all the time in the monasteries. And, and so it was also saying to them, when you read the Psalms and sing the Psalms, think about the cross, think about Jesus. So it's kind of a Christocentric understanding of, of the Psalms. And actually, just one final point on that, linking the Psalms with Egypt and Ireland, <laughs> because <laughs> there was found in a bog in Fadenmore in County Offaly, um, just maybe 15 years ago, a farmer was kind of cutting turf there, um, and he saw something that didn't look like turf. It was dark brown, but it just looked a little bit different. So he went down and he saw this thing sticking out and he said, well, I, he was well trained. I don't know how, but he knew that he had to cover it over, not to take it out because it looked like it might be some kind of an artifact. So he covered it over, called the National Museum, and it turns out it was a book of Psalms from the 8th century. Um, and the really incredible thing is that the leather binding of this book of Psalms was stiffened with papyrus. And papyrus only grows in Egypt. Uh, well, I mean, it grows around the Mediterranean, but it certainly doesn't grow in Ireland. Um, and so it seems that there were some books coming from the Mediterranean world, coming from Egypt, possibly, ultimately, um, that were circulating in Ireland. And by the 8th century, these books maybe weren't legible. Um, and so they said, well, what will we do with them? We'll use them to stiffen the, the leather cover of, of this manuscript. And um, so there, is, there are those connections. But again, probably indirect rather than direct would be my thought. Amazing. I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you, Father Connor. Sure thing. And um, also, uh, there's another wonderful episode where you, you actually deal with Ireland's oldest Bible. I want to touch upon that. So here at the Prairie in Benburb, we are blessed with books going back to the 1500s. And we have a beautiful King James Bible in the museum from the 1600s and so on. But that's almost to get modern, I suppose, as compared to what you're handling down there. And can you tell us a little about your experiences with this old, allegedly oldest Bible in Ireland? At least yeah. yeah. And um, that was a little bit clickbaity as well, because um, <laughs> obviously there this this Bible we were looking at is from probably the 14th century. And people will say, well, hang on, the Book of Kells is a lot older than that. And it is but it's not a complete, the Book of Kells is not a complete Bible. And it was only in the 13th century that people started putting all the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one single volume. Um, and we kind of explain in the video why they started doing that. Um, and this Bible from the 14th century that's currently now in the Russell Library in Maynooth, um, in St. Patrick's College, Maynooth, that is the earliest example we have on the island of Ireland of a Bible like this. Now, it's not from Ireland. It came into Ireland in more modern times. And there are actually Bibles that um, that were used in Ireland, we know, in the 13th and 14th century. So that they're as old as this one, at least. But they're now in England, in English libraries, in Lambeth Palace, two of them that I know of. Um, so anyway, the, 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 the point is that it's it's very, very old. Um, it's, the very, it's the oldest, probably, on the island of Ireland, example of a single volume Bible. Um, and we talked about some of the features because at that time, some of the features that we find in all our Bibles were introduced. So they weren't there from the beginning. It's in the 13th century that they were introduced. Things like chapter numbers. So we kind of think the chapter numbers, you know, came down with the, 
with the stone tablets or something like that, but they didn't. Um, they were they were really they found other ways to navigate the Bible and um, before the 13th century. But then they kind of thought, well, why not just come with up come up with a standard way of numbering um, Bible chapters? You know, uh, divide them up, divide each of the books up um, into chapters. And Dominicans actually had a role to play in popularizing that. So you have us to thank for that. And Bible verses didn't come in until the 16th century. But again, Dominicans were involved in that as well with the, with the introduction of Bible verses. Um, but then there's also some really cool things in this manuscript. There's a little list of Hebrew names at the end of the Bible. And um, it's an alphabetical list. So, you know, at the end of your Bible, you might have all kinds of little reference features. You know, um, uh, you might have a concordance or something like that. Um, or you might have a list of themes. So it might say, you know, anger, see these verses. Uh, doubt see these verses well they loved those kinds of reference tools in the 13th century and they loved them because there was this was an age when preaching was just exploding through the friars and um, the franciscans dominicans augustinians carmelites and these guys would go around with their one volume bibles that were popular now and if they were called on to preach they might say well i'm going to preach about anger i need a reference tool to find me a nice verse to preach on and they would use these reference tools and again <laughs> Not to boast, but Dominicans were involved in their drawing up of these reference tools. There was one called Hugh of Saint-Cher, um, and he produced a really important uh, set of biblical reference tools. Um, so some of these things, we might regard them as very modern, or sometimes we might regard them as kind of, you know, belonging to the Bible from the start. But actually, these things are medieval. Excellent. Thank you, Father Connor. And uh, again, I suppose, going back to something we spoke about earlier, Recently at the Parry here in Benburb, we had St. Gerard's School on retreat from Bray, County Wicklow, and they actually mentioned, uh, I brought your name up to one of their teachers, and they mentioned that you gave a great talk on the history of the relationship between the Christian faith and science. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit more about your work on that and some of the key points that you're keen to remind people of. And uh, I'm, thinking, I'm coming at it from my perspective here. Yeah. I've been, I'm interested in it in large part in terms of the philosophy of science say at an individual and at a societal kind of historical level so by that I mean even the need for faith in the intelligibility of the world itself in order to adopt the scientific method in the first place that you're willing to sacrifice your theory on the author of truth in order for it to be falsified and so on and the role of these distinctly Christian beliefs actually on the origin and the growth of what we now call science or the sciences that we often take for granted. And um, maybe you can tell us about some of the nuances of different scientific paradigms competing with one another. So in the past, I've read books about the history of science, which suggested, as you brought up Galileo earlier, that actually a lot of the back and forth was between things like Ptolemy's model of the universe versus Galileo's and things like that. Maybe you could touch upon some of those issues or what you're particularly interested in in these intersections. Then, yeah, well, definitely. When you look at the the debate around Galileo, um, it was a debate between scientists and um, between people who accepted that the universe is intelligible and um, and that using human reason, which is a gift from God, we can come to understand something of the universe and we can we can find regularity in it. We can discover scientific laws and so on. None of them doubted that. Um, it wasn't a debate between rationality and irrationality. It was a debate, as there are debates in science today, 
and science flourishes on, on, on debate, you know, what explanation best fits the evidence. And, you know, there are often multiple possible explanations and they, they, they kind of fight it out. Um, and I think, um, I think that's a really important point to bear in mind that, that all the people in the Galileo debate, they all had the same assumptions about the possibility of science, that science is possible. None of them were saying, I don't like science. Um, or you know they weren't trying to to undermine science as such, and you know even Galileo could never have done his work without the institutional support of the church. And this really is kind of the the, the, the kind of the area that I focus on more than the philosophical arguments because you could I mean you can definitely argue that there's something in Christianity that is sort of philosophically conducive to to good science. Um, I definitely think you can you can make that argument. I don't think you want to go too far as if to say, you know, it could only have happened in the Christian world because I mean, in the Islamic world, it's it's flourishing at a much faster rate, um, in the in the you know late first millennium, um, but definitely you can say you know that that the 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 truths of faith are favourable towards the the um the the progression of of the natural sciences, um, what what I do in in this workshop in schools. It's much more about um, it's just about history. We're just telling stories, um, and again, I, I generally start off with a, a timeline um, from Carl Sagan's book Cosmos, where he shows you know in the ancient Greek world loads of scientists doing things, and then in modern times loads of scientists doing things, mm-hmm. and for about a thousand years there's just this empty gap. <laughs> there's just nothing, and I just show this timeline to the students and I ask them what is this timeline communicating. And they eventually realized it's saying that that no science happened in for about a thousand years. When the church was strongest, science was weakest. That's the kind of the claim, the implicit claim. Um, and my aim in the workshop then is just to tell them stories to fill in that gap. Um, and it'll be all kinds of figures. Um, so I'll talk about um, Irish scientists like um, Jikul and Dungal of, of Pavia, who wrote on... Um, on the the measurement of the sphere of the earth and eclipses and different things like that in the eighth and ninth centuries and um, i'll tell them about um uh, saint albert the great I mean, he's my absolute favorite dominican he taught saint thomas aquinas and he just wrote on almost every area of science i have a little um lecture on him again if you look for um albert the great in the natural sciences i think that's what it's called on soundcloud and um, He's just, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of St. Albert. He worked on biology, on astronomy, on physics, on, you know, animals were his major interest. Um, and he's just absolutely extraordinary. He's such a scientific spirit. And he's actually developing the scientific method at the time. That's all in the 13th century. And then, you know, I go on to talk about, um, look at the Galileo case, um, but then look at the scientific revolution, figures in the scientific revolution. And normally when we say that, phrase scientific revolution we're thinking it was a revolution against what went before um, and you're kind of applying this historical paradigm uh, that everything before was oppressive to science and now it rebels but when you actually look at a lot of the figures in the scientific revolution in the so-called revolution they were really committed christians very committed and many of them were committed christians at a time when it wasn't easy to be committed christians it wasn't just that they happened to be christian um, so the pioneers in electromagnetism, Charles Coulomb, Alessandro Volta, um, and um, uh, André-Louis Ampère, who was a founding member of the St. Vincent de Paul Society, 
as well as being a major figure in in science. Um, and so I just I think telling these stories really surprises students. They're kind of stunned. And especially when I tell them about um, two female scientists who are really pioneers. Um, one of them is called um, Agnesi and the other is called Bassi, Laura Bassi. And between them, one of them was the, um, the first female professor of mathematics in history at a university. And the other was the first female professor of physics um, at a university. And they were both appointed in the middle of the 18th century by Pope Benedict XIV. Um, so these were women who were teaching at university, really, really advanced stuff, um, famous throughout Europe, and they were being promoted by the institutions of the church. Um, and in fact, um, uh, Laura Bassi, I think, had something like 20 children. So she used to do a lot of her teaching um, at home. Um, I might be I might be getting that figure wrong, but uh, anyway, she had a lot of children and she was doing a lot of her teaching at home. But then when she had reared her children, she was able to return to the university as a full-time professor. And her husband was her teaching assistant, which is a nice feminist <laughs> twist I think, to the story. Um, but I just love telling these stories because um, more than anything, they, they help to undermine the dominant narrative that people have. And especially when you tell them that and you show them the, the real evidence that, you know, no medieval educated people thought the earth was flat. They're stunned at that. And they, they begin then to question the narrative they've been taught, because many of them have been taught this at school, in fact, at Catholic schools. Um, and you can see there, they almost begin to delight then in what I'm explaining to them, because it's a little bit rebellious almost, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, and you, you, I end up always having great conversations with students um, after these talks. They're they're generally well received. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been really, really, really delighted to be uh, to be able to go into schools and to give that that workshop. Well, that's wonderful. I'm glad that you're doing that work, um, Father Connor seems to be going down well based on the reports I've heard, thank God. And um, I'm kind of curious then, as someone with a background in teaching myself, actually, what distinctives do you see in this generation coming up now? And maybe how do they compare with the older generations in Ireland? I suppose especially those um generations whose relationship with the church was toxic to say the least and do you think uh, there's a new opportunity for evangelism amongst these younger people how does that manifest itself and so forth does that make sense yeah no it's it's, it's such a great question and even i'm i'm always asking myself that question you know what what are are, are there kind of new challenges there um you know is there a new openness there sometimes i have experiences with younger people and i kind of think gosh, this generation is so much more open. And then I'll have other experiences with them and I'll go, I think, gosh, this generation is so closed. <laughs> you know, for example, I mean, they, they, they might have just such strong ideas about um, certain aspects of the teaching of the church. Um, and, you know, once you present them, they just come down like a ton of bricks and there's no interest whatsoever in any alternative view. So that's one aspect. But then on the other hand, they don't have... Um, as you say, older generations sometimes had many negative experiences, and this younger generation doesn't really have many experiences of the church at all. Mm -hmm. And one thing I see for sure is at universities, when there is a really, really good, let's say, chaplaincy community or, or Catholic community, the focus missionaries are very active in UCD, for example. And um, when there's a really good community with really good accompaniment, 
and um, you know, a compliment that's not afraid to ask the hard questions and bring people on retreats and really encourage them to go to Bible studies. I see a lot of young mainstream Irish people just on fire um, and people whose parents don't believe and who never really practiced growing up. Um, and they're, they're really catching fire and they're just incredibly impressive young people. Um, so I think there's that, in, in, in a certain sense, um, there's kind of a, when once they kind of break out from the matrix of all the beliefs they're being fed, once they break out from that, they're really free to um, to be to be different and to be courageous and um, and yet yeah, to, to really live their best Christian lives and um, without fear. Whereas maybe for my generation, um, you know, kind of there was less of a clean break with the culture mm. if you were converting, and um, and that you were still kind of and um, maybe caught up in many ways in 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 bad habits or or kind of problematic practices or whatever it might be. But a lot of these people, again, they're not becoming zealots, but they're just so much more free than um to um to form a kind of a, a counterculture um that's not, you know, it's not pulling away from society as such. Um, but it really is the church fully alive. It's it's a beautiful thing to see. Thanks for that for that guy. And um in the past, you and I have discussed, and we touched upon him earlier in this conversation, uh, our, we discussed our appreciation for figures like Bishop Barron um, out of the States, although an Irish-American, we might add. But uh, you were even expressing recently to me your surprise that certain people haven't even seen this Catholicism series, at which, which we both thought was marvellous. So um, yeah. I was curious, kind of coming off that, who in the church do you think is creating especially good work um, today and why maybe especially as it pertains to young people as we're, we're um, getting into at the moment there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, th I think Bishop Byron and the whole word on fire scene is, is really, um, is really, really effective and, and really speaks to people. I mean, just yesterday um, I was speaking to somebody who, who talked about a friend of his whom he never expected to return to the faith and this friend did return to the faith through the videos of bishop barn and mm -hmm. i could i mean i have about five or six examples of that and that's a lot just in my own little circle of people that i know and um, people who had really no interest in the faith and they came back and i think if you if people read the the confessions of saint augustine he grew up with a certain kind of christianity rejected it became manichaean became interested in all kinds of exotic stuff and when he was in milan he went to hear Bishop Ambrose speak and he, he went to him just because Bishop Ambrose was a famous rhetorician. He was a famous speaker and he just wanted to kind of take notes on his rhetorical style. Um, and he was really impressed with his rhetorical style. But then the content began to seep in more and more and more. Um, and he realized, OK, this is a really intelligent presentation of Christianity that I've never encountered before. And I've got to grapple with this. And I think that's what happens with Bishop Barron's content. And word on fire generally is that people see it, they see good production values, they see something that's kind of pleasant and, and interesting, engaging with modern movies or whatever it might be. And then they realize, okay, underpinning all of this is actually a really coherent Christian worldview. And I've got to grapple with this. And thankfully, a lot of people, when they grapple with it, they end up losing the battle like Jacob wrestling with God <laughs> and they 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 um they become Christian. Um so I, I think that's really really key is is that you have something that looks well that is that is smart and um 
uh, that that kind of engages with the culture without being kind of pandering to the culture or trying too hard that we're nevertheless we have our own really coherent worldview and i'd say other other people who are doing similar things in different ways i mean i'm so often meeting young people in you know let's say in the sacrament of confession or just at retreats and different things who talk about father mike schmitz and the effect that his teaching has had on them um, and so some people might might know his work with ascension presents but the bible in a year podcast really it has really helped people to get to know the bible uh, people who wouldn't otherwise read the bible they're doing it because of this podcast um, and he's doing now catechism in a year podcast as well so i think he's really effective and another thing that a lot of young people speak to me about is the chosen um, and and you know people have different views on it but i mean so far i've absolutely loved it um, and i think it's a really good we were speaking about kind of protestants and catholics working together and this is a really good example the man behind it is a protestant um, but he works very closely with Catholics and very respectfully, he's very respectful of the Catholic interpretation of scripture. And I just, a lot of people I know who say they've just fallen more in love with Jesus and with the apostles, thanks to this series. And they're kind of going back to their Bibles with all the more, all the more enthusiasm. And um, so there are examples from, um, from America. Um, and I think it's up to, up to ourselves in Ireland to do similar things, but in an Irish idiom, aware of the Irish cultural landscape, which is different from America. Um, so I think that's the challenge for ourselves. No, wonderful. Thank you, Father Connor. I think, um, not to give you a big head, but I think you and Patrick and figures like that are doing a wonderful job here in Ireland. And I'm most grateful for that. And I'm sure many others. As are you, as are you, Marcus. And I've been inspired for a very long time. I mean, I remember I came across your channel for the first time and I kind of thought, where is this guy coming out of? My gosh, he's read so much. And it's just one of these examples. And I, I see this as well. And I think it's really important to, to recognize this. I keep coming across people, you know, who around the country and um, who out of nowhere, uh, seemingly just have this incredibly well-formed faith and passion for the Lord and for the church. And, um, and it just reminds me, God is at work. Okay. This isn't just a kind of our own renewal plan or something like that. God is at work. He's raising up saints and it's a beautiful thing to see it. Amen to that, Father. And um, I, I, lo I almost love speaking with you and I'm sure we could talk all day, but I'm cognizant that you have another meeting today. So <laughs> I'm going to uh, try and close up quite soon. But before we do, I wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you are working on at present Um or if there's anything further that you feel a passion to get involved with, with that you want to tell us about or what's next for Treasure Island? Treasure Island. Yeah. yeah. So the, well, Treasure Ireland, um, we've been to Louth, Kildare. Kildare is going up at the moment. Um, Leash is is in progress, uh, but we filmed all the sites. Carlo and Kilkenny, we just finished filming. We were there for about five days and made about 30 videos um, <laughs> or filmed for about 30 videos. And Patrick is currently at work um, producing all of those videos um, and then um, we're hopefully going to go west in the summer my plan is to go to the rainiest counties um, in the middle of summer so I'll be going to Galway and Mayo um, and maybe up to Sligo as well and we'll be filming at, at kind of uh, sites of Christian heritage there um, but apart from that um, I'd, I'd encourage people to follow Irish Dominicans on Instagram Facebook um, and YouTube um, to subscribe to the YouTube channel if they could um, but just one other thing I'm involved in that people might be interested in is the Aquinas Summer School. 
Um, so that's happening in Ross Gray from the 5th to the 12th of August this year. It'll be the 11th annual Aquinas Summer School. Um, and it's such a simple thing. We get together um, in an atmosphere of prayer and friendship, beginners to advanced, and we spend every morning in seminars reading through uh, parts of the works of St. Thomas Aquinas, who can be a challenging figure to read, but we have tutors there to kind of guide the reading. Um, and and it's in, every year incredible things happen. It's really beautiful to see just people's spiritual lives being transformed by reading some really challenging theology. Uh, and this year we're going to read texts on the Eucharist. So Thomas Aquinas is really famous for, for writing um, many hymns and poems about the Eucharist for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Things people will know like the Tantamergo, Adorote Devote, um, and prayers like that were written by St. Thomas Aquinas. He's really got such beautiful Eucharistic theology. And so that's the 5th to the 12th of August in Ross Gray. And you can find more details and apply at aquinasinstitute.ie, aquinasinstitute.ie. So people will be very, very welcome to, to come along to that. And it's really, really cheap. Um, I just can't remember the price at the moment, but we fundraised to, to make it as, as cheap as possible. Um, so I'd really encourage people to apply and come along to that. That's magnificent. Thank you, Father Connor, and thank you so much for your time today. A real pleasure, Marcus, and God bless all the work. God bless you.